Support for WAER Original Podcasts comes from California Closets of Syracuse, located in DeWitt. California Closets can help you get your entire home organized with custom design storage solutions for the home office, kitchen pantry, closets, and more. Online at californiaclosets.com. Hollywood has taught more people about American history than any university lecture or textbook. Of course, the story Hollywood tells is largely told from the point of view of white people. This is particularly true when Hollywood tells the story of white people arriving on this continent and the ways they related to the native peoples already living on the lands that would become Canada and the United States. In far too many of those stories, the indigenous peoples of North America were portrayed in one-dimensional terms as dangerous, or as mystical, or as pitiable. The last several years have seen this narrative changing as an increasing number of native and indigenous filmmakers from around the globe have been taking up the camera to offer new stories and new perspectives. Directors like Chris Ayer, Taika Waititi, Elamaya Tailfeathers, and Jeff Barnaby have been expanding and innovating the kinds of stories and histories appearing on our screens. I'm Kendall Phillips, and on this episode of Pop Life, we continue our exploration of the Sundance Institute, by focusing on its work to promote indigenous storytelling. My guest is Adam Perrone. Adam is a filmmaker who belongs to the Kiowa and Mohawk tribes and was recently appointed as the director of Sundance's indigenous program. Adam, welcome to Pop Life. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Really uh, thrilled to have you here. And so I guess I'm, my first question is, I'm wondering if uh, I have a fairly pessimistic <laughs> or a view of mainstream media's portrayal of Native and Indigenous peoples. And so I'm wondering, from your perspective, uh, do you have an equally gloomy perspective on this long history of, of media representation? Yeah, I think my pessimism can probably give yours a run for its money, to be honest. <laughs> but like, um, yeah, no, I, yeah, I, uh, I think, yeah, you know, in terms of sort of, you know, the history of uh, indigenous people within the, you know, not just in terms of the, the industry itself, but even just in terms of the birth of film. Um, I think it's always been, um, I hate to use the term problematic because I think that it it tends to be kind of a catch all, but I think, um, you know, with indigenous people since the beginning of film, it's always been essentially kind of to what you were saying, it's been sort of one dimensional and the dynamics always been sort of from a white gaze to, uh, indigeneity. When you look back, you know, even back at, you know, William Kennedy Dixon, he's the guy who um, he's considered sort of the inventor of 35 millimeter film. He, he was working with Thomas Edison and was working with Kodak Eastman as well. And, uh, you know, some of the, the films that he's most known for were, were um, you know, two films in particular. There's um, uh, Buffalo Dance and uh, um, Sue, uh, Ghost Dance, which is another one. They were done for the kinetoscope, which is sort of like an early film uh, invention. It was like, you know, like five, six seconds or something like that. They used to play clips of like, you know, people, you know, like trains going by or like, you know, or, you know, people doing stunts or whatever. But, you know, they're in these two clips in particular, you know, they were by indigenous people uh, or they were of indigenous people uh, performing a dance. And like these people were also from uh, wild, uh, you know, Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. Um and, uh, you know, these are also considered to be the first images of indigenous people in film. And I think, you know, it's sort of set an expectation, especially like with a lot of these performers who were survivors of the Indian Wars mm-hmm. and of westward expansion, um, you know, going on these tours um, to perform for largely white audiences, you know, sort of reenacting their own traumas uh, for the entertainment of other people. Um, I think that that was a dynamic that was really always, always kind of baked in from the beginning of the idea of like indigenous people are there to entertain or to kind of like be exoticized, so to speak. 
Um, and that's a dynamic that was always there from the beginning. You know, I think that bled into um, Westerns, obviously. That's, uh, you know, you know, obviously, you know, the, one of the biggest <laughs> things for the indigenous people in films. But I think, you know, it was something that, you know, over that period of time, and, you know, also, too, those performers were, um, a lot of those performers from the Wild West shows were um, Lakota or um, or Cheyenne as well, too. You know, they were from, like, the, um, the, uh, um, the Northern Plains regions and stuff like that. So I think, you know, back then those people had their regalia that they would wear, which would be like, you know, the, everyone already kind of recognizes the, the headdress, you know, the buckskin, the, you know, teepees, whatever. Um, and like, that was something that as a lot of those performers went back home, um, it essentially sort of became an easy costume, so to speak for people right. visually to identify who was indigenous or who wasn't. And that was something that, um, you know, kind of through that, I think, it sort of allowed non-Indigenous performers to essentially take on indigeneity as a costume. Um, and so it really sort of has this uh, this thing where, you know, Indigenous people, you know, in a very literal sense, become objectified within film. And it's really not until, um, I'd say, probably the the early to mid-70s that, um, you know, and there, there are a couple of exceptions of Indigenous people making films before that, but it's really not until kind of the um, the aftermath of, like, the, the AIM movement, the American Indian movement, um, and a lot of that activism that a lot of indigenous people start to uh, make their own films in their own way and sort of reclaiming a lot of that image as well too. From a, from a filmmaker standpoint, there were actors that were also kind of always trying to change the tide of that uh, side of representation, but um, kind of to what you were saying, you know, I mean, it's been, uh, it's been somewhat of a, a steep climb, but it's been something that I think a lot of people along the way have been able to, to really change that dynamic where it, it becomes something that's both, by and for indigenous people and also something that you know obviously adds some dimension or if not necessarily adding dimension to it also just creating totally new images of indigenous people um that in in some way are, are you know removed from kind of what was always kind of baked in from the beginning yeah it's interesting to think about how much damage the the western and that and that romanticizing did to you know kind of american cultural conception of itself and then i, I wonder about the the difficulty it must have been for those uh, indigenous native performers and and people in the film industry to portray those roles even as it is perpetuating this kind of constant stereotype of the romanticized exoticized native other yeah you know i mean it's something i mean you have some exceptions um you know obviously like a, a large one which you know if, if some of the listeners listening in remember <laughs> or have some reference to him but like will rogers uh was a huge um exception to that you know i mean in the early 1930s he's a, a cherokee um actor and performer um you know was very open about his ethnicity and very proud of it it wasn't something that was sort of like found out after he, he died or anything like that but um, it was always kind of a part of what he did, but I think because, you know, he didn't necessarily fit that kind of wild West, um, you know, or even kind of the, the image of the Western of like what an indigenous person was, I think people just kind of relegated him to, to more of like kind of an anonymously kind of like ethnically ambiguous or like white character. Um, I think, um, you know, also kind of to, to what you were saying too, I think that, you know, one of the things that's, uh, also contributed to a lot of the, the visibility, uh, of, you know, not just Native people within, you know, pop culture representation, but even just, you know, within society at large to a certain extent is that a lot of these images, you know, they've always sort of relegated uh, Indigenous people to uh, to the past, you know, antiquating them, essentially. And I think that that's always been something, you know, always having to remind people that, like, you know, we're still here, we've still, we've been here all along, you know, and that, you know, it's, it, we're, it's just like any culture where it's like, you know, there's stuff that you survive 
you survive through or stuff that you get through and it keeps going on and your culture changes. So just because something doesn't necessarily look like the image that everybody has in mind from like those Westerns of like what an indigenous person can look like, you know, we've always been here and our culture and, you know, our ways of life have also changed just like everybody else's on the planet. So, And yet the, the, for the most part in mainstream popular culture, it's sort of, as you say, been frozen in time and exoticized mm-hmm. into this nostalgic, sad, lost frontier yeah. Even though, you know, the frontier was taken through force and, and now we romanticize it and ignore the people that were left behind in the aftermath of those uh, those moments, you know. Yeah, totally. And I mean, and I think it's always like kind of a, you know, uh, there's always the twilight zone moment for some people. Like, and I mean, I think even for myself to an extent where it's like, you know, you have largely a whole genre and. Um, and not even just the genre of film. I mean, it's within popular culture as well that, you know, really sort of glorifies uh, and lionizes this this genocide that's happened. And, you know, it, just thinking of like, if that happened to any other group of people, like what, you know, what that would look like. But I mean, you know, it's, so I think it's just, it's always something where we're like, um, you know, and it, which I think is also sort of segueing it somewhat to what we do at Sundance is, you know, like I think the 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 belief that indigenous people have always been telling their own stories in their own ways on their own terms. And just about like empowering people to, um, you know, I think people, some people do want to change that narrative and some people just want to do something that's, you know, completely new and divorced of that as well. So I think that, you know, it's, it's really about empowering indigenous people to tell their own stories through film, whether that's, um, you know, narrative, um, you know, more kind of commercially driven type of, uh, you know, bigger blockbuster type things or people that want to do, you know, smaller things like documentaries or experimental films and like whatever that looks like. It's, you know, I think that that's always the thing too, is just, you know, giving indigenous people the the room and the space and, and even more so just, you know, giving them some of the resources or at least, you know, the empowerment to, to tell those stories because, you know, I think, um, you know, as you know, with pop culture, it's, you know, stuff gets burned through at a certain point. And then it's sort of like, what's the next thing? Or like, you know, there's always something that's, I always have a belief with pop culture that the stuff that happens at the margins always ends up in the center and then sort of back again. And I think that, um, you know, I think we're starting to see that now with a number of different filmmakers, like with Taika Waititi um, and sort of his rise into, um, you know, sort of the the center of Hollywood filmmaking, you know, working on, you know, sort of running the, the gamut, so to speak, when it comes to all of like, you know, the, the Disney, um, the Disney company franchises and things like that too. Um, you know, somebody like also like uh, Sterling Harjo, who's um, who, who's also an alumni of our program as well, too, who's, you know, who's doing Reservation Dogs and how that's sort of been taking the, the TV world by storm as well. So, no, it has been a real uh, uh, exciting moment in the last uh, several years mm-hmm. of this uh, expanding. And as you say, it's quite fascinating to me, the diversity of uh, genres of approaches. And I think I, I was listening to uh, an interview you had or a conversation you had uh, with Elamaya Tailfeathers, and she used this, mm-hmm. I thought, very felicitous phrase narrative sovereignty. And I, that really mm-hmm. stuck with me as because there are probably some folks who would say, well, you know, we had Dances with Wolves and that was sympathetic. And there are, of course, a whole series of kind of white savior films that are uh, sympathetic to, uh, but they are still told from a particular white colonizer point of view. So I guess I'm wondering how important is it to have that sovereignty over one's own narrative? Yeah, I'm a I'm a huge proponent of it, obviously. I think it's like, you know, and I think even sort of expanding on that even further, I think it's 
it's not just about like letting indigenous people, I mean, this is a component of it. Yeah. Like letting indigenous people just tell their own stories in the way that they want to tell it. Um, and you know, like you would any other filmmaker, but I also think too, that, you know, to take even Elamaya's concept even further to a certain extent, um, and not, I don't want to put words in her mouth. This is also just kind of like my own philosophy on it too, but also seeing how, like, if we are to sort of boil it down beyond sort of a lot of the colonial constructs that we've, that, you know, we've had to face in film or even just in society and culture at large is like the idea that like, you know, what does it look like if an indigenous person makes something that's based off of their own culture and their own viewpoint? And it's like, you know, even to an extent, if they're creating their own visual language of, of cinema, like how, you know, it's almost kind of the thing of it being like creating like almost a different national cinema, so to speak, in the sense that like, you know, we, we come from cultures that are distinct and are sovereign from, you know, sort of the, the larger colonial umbrella that um, that we have to navigate and stuff like that. But it's also kind of one of those things where you do have those filmmakers that are pushing the bounds and sort of the, you know, the, the formal boundaries of what uh, what cinema is possible, what, what cinema is capable of. And I think that that's also incredibly interesting and something to support. And, um, and I think, it, you know, it ties into the idea of narr uh, narrative sovereignty in the sense that you have some people that don't want to follow, you know, sort of a Western three-act structure and what that may look like. They may want to base it off of like, you know, their own sort of, um, you know, cultural stories that, you know, a lot of our indigenous cultures and our storytelling traditions follow like a circular structure where, you know, they don't have necessarily three acts. They may have something that looks like eight or something, you know? So it's like, you know, just empowering people to, um, to, you know, both sort of like from within the industry standpoint of sort of shooting as high as they can, you know, as they can go and keep going like somebody like Taika. And then, you know, there's also people like, Sky Hopinka, um, who's, uh, you know, a, a, a filmmaker whose work, I think his work's played um, five times at, at Sundance, um, both from shorts and features. Um, but somebody who I think is also kind of working in that mode, he's really sort of figuring out their own sort of personal way to, to tell stories and something that, you know, is tied to how they see the world and how they sort of engage with their own indigeneity. No, it's funny. We recently had a conversation with Michelle Satter, also at Sundance, and she talked about the the importance for Sundance, both the festival and, and the Institute, in expanding the space for, you know, different kinds of stories, different kinds of voices, different kind of frames of, of narrative and, and experience. So I'm wondering for you, uh, why is it important or, or what ways is it important to Sundance's mission to have a program specifically dedicated to indigenous filmmakers? Yeah. Um, well, you know, like we've been around actually since the the founding of the Institute. Um, I think, you know, when you look back at um, our, you know, our founder, Robert Redford's involvement in, in you know, the film and television industry, he, he always had noticed that there was an absence of uh, Native writers and directors. And, um, and uh, you know, obviously with his, his work in Westerns, this was also something that he saw. And, you know, one of the things that he had asked people that he worked with was like, you know, where are these, um, you know, these other indigenous artists and creatives that are working in the industry. And like at the time, specifically within the Hollywood system, nobody was able to find or point to anybody. Um, and so, you know, back when, uh, you know, he sort of the, the formal founding of Sundance in 1981, um, you know, Redford had sort of, he wanted to take um, that, that initiative and sort of that drive that he was looking for in terms of like creating a space for indigenous artists to, to, to tell their own stories through film. And so, you know, the, this program, has been around since the since the founding, since the the actual founding. So you know there've been indigenous people there from the beginning, um, and it's you know it's changed throughout the years. We've you know we've gone through a number of different sort of iterations of what the program looks like and does. But throughout throughout we've had our own labs, our own sort of workshops, and uh, direct granting support that we've given to different indigenous artists and 
you know, you had mentioned some of our alumni that, you know, we always, we always love to tell everybody <laughs> as well too, you know, like Taika Waititi was uh, an artist who came through our program and we've had a long continuing history with him, Sterling Harjo, uh, Black Horse Low. And, you know, there's a list that just goes on. I mean, that I, I wouldn't have enough time for <laughs> the recording to go through every, every single person, but, you know, it's been something where it's been both within the U S as well as sort of an international focus as well too. So we've, you know, supported artists and, in uh, Canada, um, Central and South America, um, the Sami up in Scandinavia, um, the, all the Pacific Islands, uh, New Zealand and Australia, and kind of, you know, like everybody kind of from everywhere in between, so to speak. Um, so, you know, we've gone from something that's been, you know, very sort of, um, uh, you know, U.S. specific to something that we're, we, while we are still supporting, um, you know, Amer- American-based uh, artists, we've also expanded to um, working internationally as well, too. So, and again, Taika is somebody who's come through through so- sort of our, our international outreach and um, Elamaya as well, too, through Canada um, and a number of other folks as well, too. So, so I'm curious about that. You know, it, it, it's important, and I've heard you make this point in, in other interviews, that we, we not think of Native Americans as one body. Certainly the, the Onondaga yeah. Nation, where, where I'm, uh, I, I live on the territory of the Onondaga Nation is different Mm -hmm. than the Kiowa or different than the Cherokee or different than other um, Mm -hmm. peoples in in this U.S., certainly different than parts of the First Nations, but certainly also different experiences, different cultures than the Maori or folks in in other parts of the world. What do you think is the value of kind of bringing those indigenous cultures together under this broader umbrella? Do you find their kind of collaborative synergy existing when all of these different uh, cultures and voices and perspectives and experiences kind of come together in the Sundance environment? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, just, um, you know, when was it two weeks ago, we just actually wrapped um, our, our filmmaker lab that we run. Um, you know, we had three artists from the U.S., uh, one from Canada and one from New Zealand. Um, and, you know, I think one of the things that we found specifically from that work is, you know, I think, as you were saying, and, you know, kind of to what I've said before too, you know, we all come from very distinct and different cultures, but we've always had sort of a similar dynamic with, you know, a larger colonial power in mm-hmm. terms of like us in our own self-determination to, you know, around our own, our, our own identity, how we we're navigating sort of the film space. And, you know, I think when people, other indigenous people have gotten together, it has created this really sort of amazing, amazing synergy and, um, you know, just sort of like a, a creative sort of collaborative energy um, in there. And I think, you know, I think also kind of um, with part of that, too, you know, I always think of something that our former director, uh, Bird Runningwater, always used to say, too, is that I think if with Indigenous cinema to kind of um, to uh, how would I put it to, to not necessarily like advance, but to flourish uh, to a certain extent, his belief was always that like it was going to have to be a collaborative effort. Um, which is also something I think that is, you know, not to sort of use a, not to go totally pan indigenous here, but like a lot of things that, you know, one of the things that's a really sort of like uh, marked quality of a lot of our cultures is that, you know, they are collective or that they do, um, you know, they, they do focus more on the, um, the larger community versus necessarily just the, the, the single person which is, I think, is also a very sort of, it's kind of the inverse of how, you know, the, the U.S. and the West makes, uh, makes films, so to speak. So I think that, you know, you've really seen, I think we've really sort of seen the fruits of that over the last couple of years, again, with somebody like Taika and Sterling, you know, where they, they were friends through this program, you know, when they were both artists and fellows and things like that. And, you know, that uh, Reservation Dogs is a, a direct sort of result of, of that type of collaboration and sort of that synergy you were talking about. And then also, too, a lot of those people that are, 
staffed in the writing room as well too. Some of them are alumni of our program. Um, and so it's, it's been something where I really think that, um, you know, it's something that leans into our cultural values as indigenous people. And also something that, um, you know, I think has, has really sort of marked the, 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 the rise that we've seen of indigenous artists in the last few years. So I'm wondering, and I'm glad to hear you say that because, you know, my sense, uh, not a professional, just a, a critic on the outside, is that we are sure. seeing a, a kind of renaissance moment, a, a kind of real uh, growth. And we certainly have seen examples. I, I think of Smoke Signals as kind of one of those films I remember seeing a, a few decades ago. But certainly the last five, six, seven, eight years has seen a lot of prominent films and television, et cetera, et cetera. So do you, would you identify, what would you identify as kind of the turning point where this started to really gain momentum in popular culture? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that there's kind of like two things. And again, this isn't, I, I'm not saying this in a definitive sense. This is just like <laughs> sort of my my own sort of, you know, me sort of, you know, sticking my finger up in the air and figuring out where the wind's blowing, so to speak. But I think, um, you know, I think one of the, I think there's been two things. I think that there's been a, a particular shift since uh, Standing Rock happened, mm. um, where I think that, again, there was sort of a, um, I guess you could say sort of like a new level of awareness that was brought to, um, it was sort of a twofold thing where it's like obviously within um, not just our own po- popular culture, but internationally, I think, you know, there was a lot of, there were a lot of eyes on, you know, these ongoing struggles that we're having, you know, where it's still, we're in the 21st century and this, you know, that well, mm-hmm. I'm not going to curse, but like this stuff is still going on. And, um, you know, I think that, um, I think that that was part of it. So I think that, you know, there's already kind of this awareness and I think on a number of different levels, whether it was people just realizing that we were still here um, but also I think, you know, from other, you know, things like institutions or things like that, that really sort of saw the need to include indigenous people in a lot of these discussions going on. Um, I think it also, from the indigenous standpoint, I think that that moment also really sort of reinvigorated a lot of people around, you know, the, the continual kind of struggles that we've had against, you know, our various colonial states um, that have, uh, you know, that in terms of that dynamic. And I think that that is also something that really sort of re- has reignited people around, um, you know, a, a lot of people have always been doing that work. It's always been something we've been aware of, but I think that it was again, sort of like this, this flashpoint for a lot of people to, um, you know, to double down in some senses on like our cultural values or, you know, um, our communities in terms of like what, you know, what we're facing. I think also um, in terms of film in particular, uh, film and TV, I definitely think, you know, Taika Waititi's Oscar win was um, another thing that really sort of like blew open the doors for a lot of the people that are working here. And again, too, it, it all sort of like, not to say like all roads lead back to Taika, but I think like, it's one of those things that like, it's one of those things that like, I think um, because of his success, that was, you know, I think in a lot of ways, like everybody was so proud of, uh, so proud of him for that. And I think also just in terms of like what he was able to do with um, a lot of the momentum that he was building in terms of like opening up at least stateside. Um, I know he's been doing, you know, a bunch of stuff elsewhere as well, like in New Zealand, so to, uh, you know, but I think, you know, from the state side, I think that that's really been uh, uh, a turning point as well too. And, and, you know, too, there's, there's also been people again, like I'd mentioned before, like Sky Hapinka, um, you know, other folks that are working maybe a bit more in like kind of the the art space um, where, you know, film and art uh, crossover um, that have been doing that work and, and you know, consistently sort of been uh, doing work as well since then. But I think that there has been sort of this this kind of, 
I guess you'd say sort of this like parallel blossoming of, of, you know, people both working kind of within the mainstream and people that are working in, um, you know, in, in more of kind of the, uh, uh, the realm outside of the industry making films as well too. So I think that it's been, um, and in terms of sort of that parallel thing going on, I don't exactly know what, how that sort of crossover necessarily happened, but I think it's something that um, kind of to, to your point, I think it's sort of been like that sort of like lock and step of those two events that have been something that I think people can definitely like point back to, you know, whether it's like 10 or 20 years from now and say like, yeah, something happened here and it's sort of like led to all this other stuff going on. So, And there certainly seems to be, a, and, and probably because of your work at Sundance, a sense of kind of a community. So I was interested to see that Reservation Dogs was this partnership, this collaboration between Sterling Harjo and Taika Waititi, whereas, you know, it, in the past, maybe there seemed like there are instances where a filmmaker from a community uh, gets some prominence and then just sort of enjoys that prominence. But there does seem to be this kind of growing community. So I'm curious. This is a really unfair question, Adam. I'm going to ask sure. you a really horrible question. You, oh, you've God. been okay. involved. In, you've been involved with not a horrible, horrible but a horrible question. You've been involved <laughs> yeah. with with Sundance and and working in these collaborations and and part of this, you know, really building and nurturing this amazing community of of indigenous filmmakers from around the world. Are there any success stories that are the ones that really warm your heart? I mean, clearly we have All Roads leading to Taika Waititi um, and a lot of other amazing films and filmmakers. But are there any examples of someone that you worked with or a project you worked with that when you saw it come to fruition, it sort of made you say, yeah, this is why I do this work? Um, I think one in particular. I mean, I I know I would mentioned Sky's work before because I kind of had seen that film go from you know, it's very early development to like when it when it premiered at Sundance and kind of a lot of the success he's had since then. Um, and that's been really cool. I think like one filmmaker in particular, um, Shandine Tome, she's a, a Diné filmmaker um, from New Mexico. Um, I think that seeing her growth has been something that has been really, um, yeah, I've really sort of gotten that feeling you were talking about where it's like she came, one of the the fellowships we have is called the, the Full Circle Fellowship. It's specifically... Um, uh, looks at indigenous, um, I, I wouldn't say youth, but you know, like younger folks from mm-hmm. New Mexico, Michigan, and Mississippi. And um, I want to say this was back in 2016, 20, yeah, probably about 2016. Um, Shandine was uh, one of the people, one of the, the people from that, that cohort who sort of came, came into that, that fellowship. And, you know, we worked with, with her, she was looking at, you know, cinematography as a potential path and a career path to into film. And so, you know, I think we were able to help help her make some connections through that. A year later, she um, she came back to our lab uh, that we were doing. She was one of our fellows for that, uh, workshopping a, a short film she had she had written. Um, we were able to to, to test shoot some uh, some scenes with her and stuff like that. And then later on, you know, the, the film uh, played um, at the at our festival um, about a year later. And um, and then, you know, just this past year, she's uh, she's come back. Um, with a film that she co-directed, a documentary called Long Line of Ladies. And um, yeah, I played at our festival and then it went to South by Southwest. It won the Grand Jury Prize for uh, for Best Short there. And um, and yeah, and it's like, it's uh, just seeing somebody kind of go from like, you know, a, a fresh film student to, you know, winning, you know, the, the top award at South by Southwest and, you know, just sort of um, doing what they love in terms of, you know, both working as a cinematographer and a filmmaker, um, and, you know, being able to, to provide that space and that support um, throughout the years has been something that I think is, um, you know, it's been really rewarding to see somebody who's been been able to kind of go from, you know, the very start of their journey to where they are now. And like, you know, 
nothing stopping them either. They're still going, but um, you know, just, I think something like that, it's, it's been, you know, I think Shandine's been an inspiration to a lot of different people. And I think that it's been, it's been great to see her grow as an artist. Well, I'll say one of the, one of the inspirational lessons that I've gotten, and I think our listeners have gotten out of this uh, conversation with you and also with Michelle is, is the role of Sundance in creating this amazing uh, mentoring community. And it's wonderful to hear these stories of people achieving success and coming back and paying it forward. And such an amazing institute. I'm really appreciative of your time. But as regular listeners know, we don't just like to find out the expertise of our amazing guests. We also want to dig a little into their pop culture loves and their pop culture life. And Adam, we begin this segment nice. with a little <laughs> game we call The Fast Five. So I'm going to ask you five somewhat irreverent, probably annoying questions that will give you an either-or choice, and I'm going to ask you to follow your heart and choose the answer that feels right to you. We'll begin with question number one. I know the Cannes Film Festival just concluded. Uh, mm-hmm. So for you as a person who has gone, to, who's been at Cannes, uh, which is the more disturbing aspect of summer in France? Is it the persistent presence of middle-aged men in Speedos or the ever-present prospect of the boulangerie running out of croissants? What is the more disturbing aspect of summer in France? Uh, I would, I'm actually, I'm also half French. My dad's from there, a French citizenship. So I would definitely say the, uh, the second option that's, that's running out of croissants uh, is never an option. Yeah, exactly. Never yeah. an option. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's, uh, that's a nightmare for uh, a Frenchman. So. <laughs> Très bien. Yes. So question number two yeah. for you. Uh, I know you are an admirer of the, uh, uh, Cherokee American humorist and actor, Will Rogers. We were talking about a minute ago. So if Will Rogers was alive today, do you think he would be the preeminent podcaster or the toast of Twitter? Oh, that's a great question. I think, oh man, both. (laughs) (laughs) Probably true. Probably true. Yeah. yeah, I'll do that one. Yeah. Cause I, I, I could, I could definitely see him. Yeah. I could definitely, I could definitely see him being both. He would definitely, I think be like a Twitter celebrity and then also like running an amazing podcast or something like that. Yeah. And he would be welcome to be a guest on Pop Life. So question number three for you, Adam. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. David Lynch, of course, is one of the great American directors and inspiration for a lot of us who love film. So which would mm-hmm. you be more excited to see? David Lynch directing the next sequel to Top Gun or a Broadway musical based on his film Inland Empire? Oh, man, Top Gun, for sure. Like, I, that would be a, a nightmare. <laughs> like, I would, I would need to see that. I need to see that movie now. So. I totally need that greenlit. Someone out there, let's, <laughs> yeah. let's, let's get going. Come on, call Tom Cruise. So question number four yeah. for you. Uh, Adam, if you could sit down with a cup of coffee uh, with one of the pioneering early filmmakers, would you choose the French magician George Melier or the early Edison studio director W.K. Dixon? Uh, Dixon, for sure. Dixon, yeah, definitely more the technical side. I, I would sit down with Melier because I think he'd be a lot more fun, but hey, we all have our choices. Yeah, so totally. finally, question number five for you, Adam. I know you and I share a bit of a love for cheesy horror films, so which of these proposed but not made chapters of the Leprechaun franchise would you most want to see go into production? So these were actual proposed uh, uh films that never got made. The first is nice. Leprechaun versus Candyman, in which the two horror icons would duke it out. Or Leprechaun in the White House, where the magical menace terrorizes the first family. Which do you want to see going into production? I mean, I'm a sucker for a good home invasion film, so I think the White House one sounds really good. I'm with you. Let's. I think that yeah. it's certainly given the first family, that could be a lot of fun. So, uh, Adam, yeah. you're an amazing guest. We really love learning from you. So we have to ask, what are you loving in pop culture? Is there something you're listening to, binging, reading, watching? What What's on your radar? Um, yeah, I've been, uh, I've been really into the, the second season of hacks, 
um, on HBO Max. Uh, really, yeah, really big fan of uh, of that show. I think the the writing is really great, and I think they've just been. It's it, I, I'm always like the second season is always something where it's like it's kind of a make or break type of type of situation. I feel like, and I think yeah, I think people either go overboard or uh, they just kind of go sideways. But I think this thing, it's it's uh, you know they've definitely really kind of charted the path and they're going forward with everything at least so far you know, I haven't gotten to the end of the season yet but yeah yeah it seems like the narrative is really deepening as opposed to like you say sometimes the sophomore season seems like oh let's just do the same thing or let's go a different direction but I really feel like that show is just getting richer every episode yeah totally totally and I think you know it gets to a lot of stuff as well too just in terms of like working and in, in entertainment and just like a lot of the dynamic of you know the, the pe- people on the fringes like what happens to somebody who's been at the top and as they start to kind of like you know their career starts to sunset and things like that so I mean it's it's a really interesting thing in the sense that yeah it's it's kind of looking a bit more at the margins rather than kind of the the, the center so to speak so Well, we were thrilled to get a chance to look into the center of the Sundance Institute. I hope our listeners have enjoyed this special two-part series. Uh, Certainly learned a lot about Sundance, and and certainly the the Sundance Institute is a lot more than just a film festival and glamour. Uh, Special thanks to Michelle Satter and Adam Perone for joining us, and to Sylvie Fernandez for her assistance in pulling this together. And as a reminder to our listeners, if you have comments, questions, or suggestions for future episodes, reach out to us on social media. We are at WAER on both Twitter and Instagram, and I will see you all next time. Thanks for listening to Pop Life, a production of WAER, Syracuse Public Media. You can find archived episodes at WAER.org, and don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen for automatic delivery of new episodes.